0: This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. Welcome back to another interview from the skill exchange calls that I've been running with climate farmers for our regenerative farming network in Europe. Now, in this session, I had the good fortune of introducing Stefan Subkowiak to our group. Many of you who've been listening to the show for a while will remember the last interview that I did with Stefan in the last season during the series on agroforestry. Stefan is one of my favorite sources for practical and honest techniques for managing the whole ecology of an orchard, from propagating new tree species through maintenance, pest management, harvesting, and even processing and marketing your products. His film, The Permaculture Orchard, Has helped people around the world to transition towards diversified, resilient, and more profitable models of running their tree crop business. His YouTube channel goes even more in-depth as he's always creating videos about the innovations and even the struggles that are going on at his orchard, Miracle Farms in Canada. Now, in this session, we cover a lot of ground in a short time. We talk about how to manage pests and diseases by improving soil health and biodiversity in the orchard. We talk about how to care for the health of your trees for better yields and profit. We talk about integrating other crops and animals into the system for ecological and economic resilience and how to adapt common methods to your unique climate and context. Now there's a whole Q&A session that happens after the half-hour interview on these Skill Exchange calls, which are exclusive to the Climate Farming Network here in Europe. So if you're interested in attending these calls in person to have your own questions answered by the experts and to tap into the growing community of farmers, consultants, and educators around Europe, you can register right now at climatefarmers.org. And if you're interested in hands-on learning to apply some of the techniques and principles that Stefan speaks about in his interview and apply them to a centropic orchard in a developing agroforestry system here in Spain... Stay tuned to the end of this episode where I'll give you the information about how you can sign up to learn with me this upcoming October. So with all that out of the way, let's hand things over to Stefan. That's actually a good way to transition over as we build this online community and access to more information and resources. Stefan, how are you doing? Great to see you again. Very good. Sorry for uh, my mistake. No problem. I know you're a busy guy. It's just great to see you. So what do you say we jump into it, because I know that the participants here are going to have some more questions towards the end. We've got growers from different parts of Europe, Um, but I will start by giving a little bit of housekeeping and a little introduction to this call. So welcome, everybody. This is another skill building exchange from the Climate Farmers Network. Everybody here is part of our growing network of people who are uh, cultivating different types of food and managing land in the EU area and increasingly doing so in regenerative ways. And we've invited Stefan here at the request of quite a few of our members because of your incredible experience and knowledge, especially around whole orchard ecosystems. So Stefan Subkowiak is a pioneer of regenerative and whole ecosystem orchard management on Miracle Farm in Canada. His innovative methods of managing pests and insects through biodiversity, Tree crop health through perennial companion planting and soil health with animal integration have inspired people all over the world. And through his teachings, regardless of your climate or your orchard species, the practices of close observation, nature inspired patterning and symbiotic relationships will help you to optimize your orchard business anywhere in the world. Now. Just keep in mind that this call is being recorded. If for any reason you don't want to show up on the recording, you can just leave your camera and your microphone off and you won't appear. And let's go in right into the first question for Stefan. So let's get an overview about what some of the potential of creating a complete orchard ecosystem is, and what are some of the key differences between that and conventional orchards? EASINESS
1: definitely if it functions as an ecosystem it functions if it functions as a monoculture it's a broken system that you have to keep intervening because there's a whole bunch of parts of the ecosystem that just aren't there so really the yeah that's so nice to not have to deal with this insect or this problem or another I'd say that's that's the major one is how much easier it
0: becomes. And so it seems like there's a mindset shift in that, that you know there are always going to be challenges and things that come up each season. In fact, that's what we were talking about just before you arrived, how the challenges of climactic patterns and weather patterns of this season, either heavy rains and extra humidity and cold in some parts and droughts and wildfires and others have caused people to have to react in a way that you know it's something different each season and that doesn't change whether you've got a fully integrated ecosystem or if you're managing it in a conventional way but what is that difference in mindset you're looking to complete circuits close loops and make sure that all of the elements are in place rather than import them artificially or are there some other key observations that are key to managing that system um i I think your word observation is key i mean that is
1: often the clue to, oh, this can be done without me having then to intervene. I'll give you an example. Uh, In our climate, we get snow, like we'll typically have uh, 60 centimeters or more during the winter covering for three months. And in the spring, as that snow is melting, we get sun scald, so we get basically a sunburn on the bark of trees because they get very warm in the day. And in the evening, it's usually a high pressure, clear sky. So as soon as the sun goes down, the temperature drops. So we'll hit minus 10, minus 15, sometimes three hours after sunset. And what happens is the tree can't adjust quickly enough in temperature and the bark cracks. It's It basically just splits right off. So I used to have to paint uh, trunks of the trees white just to keep them from getting sunscald until one day while painting, I realized, yeah, I always have to go around this tree because there's a big shrub in front of it. You know what? If the shrub being on the south of the tree prevents it from getting sunscald, what if I planted shrubs deliberately in that position, which is the southwest, because that's where it gets the maximum evening or late afternoon sun? And if I would do that and I could use a crop shrub not just the it was just a wild shrub that had come up but I could actually plant something that will give me a crop and so that was kind of a, and it worked it worked very well and so that's one of the goals we have we should have a fruiting shrub to the southwest of every tree to reduce that effect of sunscald but that adds the same amount of trees that we have fruiting will give us that many at least shrubs that we have fruiting as well so it I mean it's the kind of thing where well if i did it conventionally or if i did it in a monoculture way well that shrub just down and go on with your painting of the shrubs uh, of the trees so observation is really one of the key but i mean it's the key to permaculture that's why it's the first principle so that mindset is looking around seeing what's happening And trying to ask, and I no longer ask, how can I do it 10% better or 20% better, which in the end you think, well, 20%, that's great. No, I look around and I think, how can I do it 10 times better? If I'm going to intervene, if I'm going to do, and if I'm going to plant, and if I'm going to make a change, how can that change make the system? Because it really is the system or that task 10 times better. Could be 10 times quicker, could be 10 times more profitable whatever it is. So, I mean, that those are a few things that aren't in the, I would say, the usual uh, principles of making it better. But certainly thinking of it as an ecosystem and always asking why. Really, we don't ask why. Why do we have this insect? Like I, I say, my, my caterpillar teacher, for us, the whole reason we changed the orchard was because of a caterpillar. So we have these tent caterpillars. In Europe, you have the... Uh, Uh, legionnaire right in the southwest of France and I don't know how far it or if it's in Spain but they basically create these massive tents and then you'll have these hundreds or thousands of the tremendous damage to the orchard like we would often get a quarter of the trees completely eaten and when they're completely eaten that tree isn't going to do anything this year it won't do anything next year because it couldn't put up any reserves and so you're two out of three years, a whole part of the orchard is not doing anything. And we used to cut those things off until we had a huge year. And just a quick count, we had at least a thousand nests of these caterpillars on a small acreage. I mean, we only have 12 acres. And so most of them are in the tops of the trees. So you you know move a ladder for a thousand nests. That's a huge job. And they grow so fast. So I ended up, I was defeated. I mean, I admitted, okay, you have me. Caterpillar, you got me beaten, I'm done. I, there's nothing I can do. So I ended up, I basically just stopped and I said, okay, caterpillar, what are you trying to teach me? I mean, you know, I, I, I got to the point. I mean, you're driven to, you don't have a choice. Something something has to change because I am completely beaten. You, you've you got me beaten. And I the idea of putting the pesticides and I could have used even organic pesticides. I was organic. And no, it, it, that was not an option to me because that just means I don't know what's going on. I haven't figured it out. And so let me intervene so I could get a quick fix. Well, that's what agriculture is all based on quick fix. I have this problem, put this product and that's not how an ecosystem works. So I, I asked the caterpillar, you know, what's going on? What do I have to do? And why are you here so much? So it was like, bang, clear as day. Well, you've created a buffet for me. I was like, what? You created a buffet. And I mean, I knew it, but it took a caterpillar, you know, or it's my inner voice, whatever. But it took that question and answer to me to go, okay, that's confirmed. That is the problem. The problem is as long as the orchard is 3,000 apple trees and nothing else, grass, but grass and trees, that's all. As long as it's that of a monoculture, I will continually have these caterpillars. They will not stop because they have a buffet. There's nothing preventing them from marching down the rows, and there were 110 trees in a row. They could start anywhere in the middle and just go in one direction and just keep eating trees. So that was the start of saying, okay if it's a buffet i've got to make it less of a buffet and that's where well i had i had been teaching permaculture even at that time and i realized you know what i got this orchard it's far from being permaculture it's a total monoculture and i looked you know yeah my neighbor has corn my my apple orchard isn't different from his cornfield it's still a monoculture okay i have grass and trees but it's still a monoculture and so we got going start to rip then we ripped out all the, almost the whole orchard and we replanted which i recommend to people do not do don't tear out an orchard that's existing and productive buy another piece of land do it somewhere else uh, or even overgraft the part of your orchard but don't tear it all out that's it's not i mean if your orchard is profitable if you're if it's working Try it somewhere else, but don't tear it. That's a huge hit You for, you know, you take out trees that are generating money and now you no longer have money coming in. And in fact, you have a lot of expenses to replant. But anyway, I did it just because still I'm kind of stubborn. And it was like, this is where we're going. And this is where we're going to go. And so finally we replanted. We went through a first cycle about two years after planting. And it was like, there's caterpillars, but, They're in a few trees, but they're not marching the way they would. So it was like, okay, that's interesting. But then I waited and I waited another three years. Then we, the trees were, then they were starting to produce and the trees were getting bigger and the caterpillars came and after that second wave of caterpillars and I realized, wow, the most they've eaten rather than eating a whole tree and then multiple trees, the most they ate was a part of one branch which one branch on a tree that has 12, 15 branches, that's not a big deal. And I was like, that was to me, the the turning point. Now I was convinced that it would work because for four or five years, I didn't even say anything because I wasn't sure that it would work. And so that's kind of the, I don't remember even what your question was, Oliver, but I mean, that's the roundabout way of getting to point out that some of the main differences First of all, get away from monoculture, absolutely observe
0: and try to have your system mimic an ecosystem. Yeah, that's a fantastic story. And I've followed your material for a long time. And uh, I've seen some of the progressions as you've hit these aha moments from the observation and the feedback loops that you're constantly learning from because you're also trying out new things and things are coming into different points of maturation and succession as you go along. So there's always something new to react to and observe from. And I've, I've really enjoyed watching your process in that way. Can you talk about some of the aha moments or some of the epiphanies that you've had when it comes to applying nutrition to the trees? Because oftentimes this is seen as one of the areas where you need to bring in some inputs, either making compost or synthetic inputs conventionally. But you have an approach of creating polyculture plantings and other ecosystem benefits from the addition of life to the orchard you want to talk about that I
1: rely on the uh, the support species and so far I mean this year we have a huge crop coming and it's like gee if if I was getting more I really don't know right off what we would be doing with more of a crop so we could and how high is high? Well, I look at it as how high at no cost. Like, <laughs> this is high enough for no cost. If, if I wanted to put in extras, uh, gee, sure, you know. I can't say uh, we do zero fertilizing, actually. We do zero in this way of putting compost. Uh, we do zero in the way of any, any addition of fertilizers. I do use whey occasionally. This year, we only use twice. Uh, we put whey which is the byproduct of cheese making uh, and we do run chickens through the the orchard so those do an addition and but definitely not enough like we could use 10 times as many chickens we could use we could use 15 or 20 sprays of whey uh, but i'm very happy with the level that it's at inputs are a bit of a treadmill because you could get hooked on inputs and hey yeah it gives a good result and you know farm the sun to the max that's one of the key things first like if you have bare ground well you're just losing sunshine you know so i would say i always say the cheapest input by far is water if you're using compost or fertilizer but you're not adding water at key times when it's needed you're spending way more than you need to water is by far as long as you have access to water in abundance which we do gee uh, pumping water for us is about three hundred dollars a year and we're growing on literally a beach sand our neighbor is sand dunes so if we didn't add water, we would be stressing the plants tremendously. But like, why put fertilizer if you're not gonna put water? To me, that's like, it really doesn't make sense. If you're relying on rain, and Oliver, I know you're in Spain. I mean, you can have some pretty long dry periods. Well, if you could add water even once every two weeks through that dry spell, Boy, well, you would be capturing sun because if your plant is shutting down and sometimes shutting down for a week or two weeks or three weeks or four weeks, well, how are you? Ca- You're not farming the sun. Like your plant is at a limiting point and it's limited by water. And then doesn't matter that you gave fertilizer. The fertilizer isn't going to be active either. The compost will barely be active because it's waiting to be humi- moistened.
0: So. That's a bit my take on inputs. Yeah, no, that's a really good observation because we do talk a lot about bringing in biology, especially when it comes to improving soil. But if there's no moisture in there, the diversity is going to die out. And much like you were talking about with some of the different inputs that you add, whether it's whey, whether it's irrigation timing, you're paying close attention to the developmental stage that your crops or your plants are in, especially with uh, getting to know Orchard plants, there are rhythms that they go through as they start to set seed or when they are putting out flower and they're developing fruit and they need different things at different times and. You've put out some great resources on how to read the developmental stages and tailor your inputs to those rather than going by a schedule and saying hey you know it's July we irrigate now or we do a spray now. But rather marrying that to the development of the tree, which can differ quite a bit over the year. Can you talk about some of the observations and the reactions needed to develop over time so that you're uh, you're growing and reacting with the plants rather than based on some arbitrary calendar?
1: Yeah, a few things there. Uh, I would, if, if you can't walk into whatever you're growing, whether it's your garden even, and within five seconds, if you can't read that there's something going on, you really need to up your game on observation. I mean, that's so critical because if you like, we're working on a master class now, and we just finished our, our course on observation. And the whole objective of that course to learn how to observe is that you need to know what is your baseline, what is this is normal. And anytime you're out of normal, things are doing really well or things are not doing well, that observation should be like within seconds of walking in you should be able to go oh something's not right here something's not working and that's something that you can develop sometimes it's visual it could be auditor i mean you could hear that it's very quiet today something isn't right it doesn't matter whatever way you would pick it up some people are you know can smell things i can't smell that much in in that way but some people can sell some people will taste the soil and know gee, the soil is really nice now, it's perfect. So that observation is, is, is really important.
0: I had a few points. What was your, the, the main idea of that question again? Sorry. No, it's okay. We're just talking about, um, I guess, the management of all of these cycles and, and being able to observe what developmental stage that the tree or whatever other crop that you're cultivating is in Rather than going by arbitrary calendars in order to make your interventions, the, the most important is flowering, because trees are
1: better in the than smaller. Plants. For example, you can have your crocus come up, or you know spring bulbs come up, but that's because it's your first five centimeters of soil is at a certain temperature. Bang, they they take off, but deeper down where the tree roots are mostly that's not, it hasn't warmed up. So flowering, uh, bud break, those are two key indicators. And I, I say calendar doesn't really mean much. Phenology means much. At what stage for that plant are you? And always keep in mind, doesn't matter, like this year, for example, we're, uh, we're probably about 16 days ahead of normal year. Like we're harvesting right now, we're harvesting what normally we're harvesting at the end of August. Like that's a big difference. But last year, we were 10 days late through the whole season. So plus or minus, you're talking, it could vary by a month. Any given crop, any given stage could change by a month. So if you go by calendar, you're you're lost completely. It makes no difference because you're going to miss everything. So instead, you need to... Go by flowering. We knew by flowering, we were already two weeks early. So that was, sometimes it catches up a little bit, but this year it's just gotten hotter and things have been getting earlier and earlier. Like that is kind of catching us a bit by surprise, but we were expecting that it would be early, but this early is is quite something. So yeah, don't go by the calendar. Go understand the phenology. And I would say, get on every day I think every government does some scouting, whether it's for conventional growers, especially in orchards or even at organic, they'll be scouting the insects. They'll be scouting the diseases as they show up. They'll be monitoring the weather and they can tell you, well, uh, codling moth, we caught the first codling moth today. They're emerging. Have your, and well, they, they usually recommend have your spray ready. But for me, it's have my traps ready. So that's important. Get on. I mean, that's, that's a whole team of people who are out there scouting and checking the phenology of certain crops. And they're reporting. So I just get emails. OK, this is what's happening. And listen, you pay through your taxes. Take advantage of these services, which usually are free. They used to be paid. But now they're free. Just get an email or get a text message, whatever. And this is the condition. This is what's happening. Uh, People are, you know, that's a lot of resources used to bring you that great information. And even if it's for conventional, but it still applies if you're growing mangoes or if you're growing whatever it is, there should be some element of scouting going on.
0: Yeah, that's a very valuable resource and I hope that we can find and put links for all of those as they pertain to different regions if you haven't been able to find them wherever you are. Let's get now to a question that always comes up eventually when we're talking about creating as resilient and diverse ecosystems as possible and still managing the necessity of efficiency and ease of work for for the business side of things. I mean, you can't just have one of every different plant scattered all different and wild in, a, in an ecosystem and hope to have an efficient and profitable business. How do you reconcile those things in your own business model, keeping in mind that you're not selling to a commodities market for, for weight values, that you have a very different business model for your orchard?
1: Yeah, that's uh, I, actually people have commented that's probably the, the biggest contribution of the permaculture orchard model is to be able to have diversity. Like we'll typically have five different cultivars of apples and three of pears in a given row. Then some plums. So there's a a mix of the trees through a row. Well, how do you do that? How can you have a whole row with between uh, 40 trees and a hundred trees How can you have that many trees and a diversity and still have some kind of logic to it? So we call it the grocery store concept. And it's the same idea as you walk in a grocery store. It's not all one thing in that grocery store aisle. There's a whole bunch of things. So what we do is all we have to know is when is that crop harvested? Well, within apples, we can harvest from the end of July of October, we've got cultivars for that whole season. So how can we reconcile that? We just need to know if we want to put blue permain. Well, blue permain is harvested from middle of October to the end of October. So we divide each month into three 10-day windows, and then those windows we would say, okay, it's the beginning of August till. The 10th of August, that's early August. Then we have the middle of August, which is the 10th to the 20th or 11 to 20. And then 21 to 30, that's the end of August. Now, in those three periods in August, if we have five cultivars of fruit that are going to harvest, we need to know where do they fit in that window. And then we just plant that. And we try to have enough that we can fill a whole row at that date. So that makes it easy when I say, and I don't pick the fruit mostly we I mean I don't I don't pick much at all we pick a little bit for a little kiosk most of it is people coming and that's everybody who picks has to be a member of the farm so we get paid in advance and then whatever they pick they pay for as well and so it's a you pick model with that diversity well actually for you pick it's the best model because when we had 11 Oh, we got enough. What else do you have? I didn't have anything. So now when they come and they can pick 40 or 40 kilos of apples and 10 kilos of pears, and then they'll pick up, you know, two kilos of plums. Oh, and you still have herbs. Oh, great. Oh, look at there's still some small berries. Yes, we'll get that too. Oh, and you have some vegetables in the. And the nice thing, I mean, if you have vegetables that you don't have to harvest, that's fantastic like why not let people pick what they want Uh, you know we we give ourselves so much work for nothing and harvest is don't don't make it light of it if anybody you you know have harvested that is a big job and in all fruit productions because I used to teach fruit production and we'd look at the ag economics of each of the crops and an average right across the board for fruit is 40% of the cost of producing that crop is harvest and packing. And we underestimate packing, but if you put fruit in a box, that box is gonna cost you anywhere from, let's say uh, for us, it's a dollar to a dollar 50. Well, if you sell that box for $10 and you got a dollar 50 in a box, that that adds up pretty fast, you know, that adds up fast. So 40%, if you can bypass that, and when I teach in Europe, I mean, God, I, I can't get it. I really can't get it. You guys have the perfect situation in Europe. You have population everywhere. Anywhere I go, I've asked and only one place have I found somebody. When I say, do you have 30,000 people within 30 minutes of where you are? Everybody's like, well, of course, everybody has that. In one place, in the center of France, they didn't. But I was like, for us, it's normal. I'm an hour from a major city, an hour. That's way too far. And it still works for me. But in Europe, the few places that I've heard that did you pick, they are crushing it. They're absolutely like... They don't want to say it because it works so well. They're making so much money and they're saving so much money because they don't have to pick. And if people are going through the orchard and they see a nice rock and they go, oh, I love this rock. I want to take this rock home. And they put it in their basket and you weigh the basket and there's a rock in it. You don't care if there's a rock in it. Like, who cares? Do you want to take that rock? Take the rock. You're paying for it, you know? So that's where God, I mean, Europe, I can't, I can't believe how come you guys aren't going crazy for UPIC. You are in a better situation. Everybody knows about going to UPIC. It's culturally established for a long time. But the first ones who do it in Europe, let me tell you, you will you'll be in people's mind as going, oh yeah, go to Oliver's, go there and you can get figs and pomegranates. I don't know, everything else you can grow, Oliver, you know what I mean? And then the more diversity you add, the more people buy. To give you an example, if we have two colors of plums, we sell two times more. We had two kinds of raspberries, two colors. They're both harvested at the same time. But we sell twice as much just because now there's two colors of raspberries. Like, I don't care. If people just want to give me more money, I'm not against it, you know? It's it really... It, don't make it more complicated. Focus on growing it and then make the make the harvesting people's problem. So for example, right now, because we're early and it was hard to schedule the dates early in the season because I wasn't sure if we were going to continue to be early, but we were. So I put dates one week early, but in fact, I should have put dates two weeks earlier. And so we're getting caught with one type of apple that has produced a huge load. And so I'm going to have to have an open day that wasn't scheduled. And what I do is if I have a problem right now, I have a problem, we're going to be losing like a a few tons of apples if we don't pick these fruit. So since that's going to be such a problem, I want to turn it to an opportunity. So we're giving away uh, a box, which is 18 kilos as a member. Uh, That box would normally be $60, but membership costs $60. So people figure, hey, I can join as a member for free because I was going to pick these apples anyway. And then every time they come, I have something else free. Not always that valuable, but there's always something free. Sometimes it's flowers. Sometimes it's herbs. Sometimes it's small fruit. Whatever is a problem to me, whatever we have so much of that we're just going to lose, I give it away. Because I know that because they came for that one item, like they saw that we were having free, free apples and they came. Very rarely do the people come just for that. They'll, they're will they there. Oh, oh, you have garlic today. Yeah, we have fresh garlic. Okay, I'll take, you know, $10 or $20 of garlic. And oh, you gotta have eggs. That's true, I gotta get some eggs. So there's $20 of eggs and and so on and so on. So focus on producing focus on designing the system to be easy and if you use those grocery store aisles people as they walk and they see the diversity they will pick more it's it i mean i've seen both because i saw when we had just apples and you know 400 trees of the exact same cultivar it that's work for you but when other people come and take care of
0: that work it's it's um, it's really nice Yeah, I think that's a fantastic example, especially, like you said, for the European context, but also for people who have smaller plots of land, where you can put in a ton of diversity that might be difficult to optimize and make really efficient for harvesting yourself or might not make financial sense to bring in a team to do that harvest work that could still serve as a community asset that is profitable for your context. I love those ideas. Now, We're getting a little low on time and I still want to make sure that we have time for listener questions. But before we go into that, can you tell us what you would give as advice for people who are just starting out or who perhaps have tree systems already and are looking to make a transition to a more whole ecosystem regenerative approach? Uh, I would say, look,
1: look at the film. We, We did a film a few years ago, The Permaculture Orchard. It's really a mini course. I would say start there because a lot of people got started just with that. That's all they had and they got started. Yeah, it it gives you enough to start. So knowing is one. And then I never emphasize enough to just do it. Like just start. It It's not going to, it'll never be perfect. You'll always, you know, that's why permaculture principle of the feedback loop. You do it, you try it, you observe and you adjust, and you make a change. So start small. I say start with two trios. That's like six trees, and just start with that. Learn because you'll learn as much with two trios as with five hundred trees. Honestly, you will because you'll start see dynamics happening, and that's that will be your feedback. Because you have to be convinced. I can't convince you. You can hear me talking. You can watch the film. But you are not convinced. Like, I was not convinced. I wasn't sure this would work. Uh, You know, he talks about this, Mollison in his book, but I wasn't convinced that that would work until I did it and until I saw a few cycles of production. And that's really the key is you have to see it and then be convinced. And then it's it's like, okay, I want to do 10 times more. No problem. Because you already have... The foundation, you know, well, I won't put this plant anymore, but I'll put more of this one. And so that's where that that start and the feedback and yeah, get the films for sure.
0: There you have it. A big thanks to Stefan for taking the time to share his knowledge and experience with our growing farmer community at Climate Farmers. Remember that if you're involved in farming anywhere in continental Europe, you can join the network right away by visiting climatefarmers.org. And now I also promise to share with you the information on how you can come and learn with me in person this October. This is the first announcement that I'm making on this exciting course that I've put together with my friend and centropic agriculture specialist, Jacob Evans. I interviewed Jacob last season about his experience applying centropic principles and design to the challenging ecology of Andalusia in Southern Spain, and how even with the harsh heat and bone dry conditions of the summers there that they face, He was able to establish an Eden of productive perennial crops and support species on degraded former farmland. Since that interview, Jacob and I have been looking for ways to collaborate. And so I invited him to come and teach with me at the farm of a good friend of ours and climate farmers, Carlo and Coralie. The two of them have been developing their new orchard a few hours south of me from where I live in Barcelona and are super excited to experiment with centropic agriculture for all of the incredible benefits of mixed biodiversity and ecosystem services that it has the potential to develop. Together we'll be hosting a group of learners for five days in which we'll not only go through the principles and theory of how these systems work, we'll be putting them into practice directly on the land as we install centropic orchard rows on their site. I'll also be going into the practical side of ensuring that this innovative way of planting matures into a profitable venture that can accelerate the development of your farm. We'll cover soil testing and plant health, seed saving and plant propagation, alley cropping and animal integration, and a whole lot more. There'll be team building activities, incredible food from the surrounding community, and much more in this five-day intensive learning experience. So whether you're excited to develop a large farm with agroforestry, or just see the opportunity to plant delicious fruit trees in your backyard or your neighborhood, You'll leave this course feeling confident to go out and start planting no matter what climate or bioregion that you live in. You can find all the details of the workshop at thegreenrebel.org, or you can find them on Instagram at thegreenrebel. I've also got all the direct links in the show notes for this episode at regenerativeskills.com. Now, due to COVID restrictions, we have to keep the group pretty small, so don't wait. Make sure you reserve your place today and come and join me in Spain this October. So that's it for this week's episode, until next time, keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.